And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. Hey, Frank, a little birdie told me you don't need a satellite dish to get DirecTV. What's the little birdie? Was it Jimmy the Sparrow? It's a figure of speech. Point is, you can stream DirecTV over the internet now. Oh, sure. Next you're going to tell me those big birds are made of metal and filled with people, right? <laughs> you mean airplanes? Stream DirecTV without a satellite dish. Visit DirecTV.com. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. Hey everyone and welcome to Power Hour with Nicole Auerbach and Chris Benini. So excited to be with you here. Coming off week four, head of week five. I want to apologize if there's any background noise. I am recording this from inside the Big Ten headquarters. I am covering CFP meetings with the commissioners this week. Um, so be sure to look out on The Athletic for some coverage of these meetings later in the week. But we are still going to bring you a full episode with a lot of interesting topics. And as a reminder, be sure to follow this podcast on Apple or wherever you get your podcast. Drop us a five-star review. Leave a question with your review, and we will answer it on the show. Subscribe to Until Saturday on YouTube because we go live every Thursday, Saturday, and Sunday on YouTube throughout the season as we preview and react to the weekend's games and hear from you, the listeners, on our Sunday Sound Off show. And uh, also, in case you are not uh, already signed up, be sure to sign up for the Until Saturday newsletter. You'll get your daily fill of college football news right into your inbox. And we will dive in, as we always do. Chris, it is wonderful to be with you. And uh, sorry, isn't my background super cool? It's like this, like I'm in the, it's a living museum basically in Big Ten HQ. So there's like a lot of trophies and facts and figures and all of that. It looks a little bit like, uh, it kind of feels like I'm in like a planetarium, honestly. It's a little bit dark. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're on video this time. If you're subscribed to the Until Saturday YouTube channel, this is on there as well. I thought you were in a studio or something. I, I believe... The last time there was a big CFP meeting around there, didn't I show up on the TVs in the lobby because I was in one of the BTN documentaries? I remember a bunch of people texted me about that, but uh, it looks nice behind you for those of you who are uh, not uh, watching for the audio people. Yes, um, we are going to have some video shows as well. Another reason to subscribe to the YouTube page because we'll be here as well. Um, we might as well dive into the news of the week a little bit less newsy, but a lot of interesting tidbits to to start with. Um, Chris, would you like to get us started here with the Power Five? We go through five topics. We try to do it a little bit like a Power Hour, where you hit on one topic and move on to the next real quickly. But knowing us, it's never all that quick. So, Chris, why don't you get us started? Yeah, I'd like to apologize for background noise. We have a couple of dogs in the background as usual. But number one, Colorado, Oregon. The viewership is in, even though that game was a blowout. Even though the game was. Uh, 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 over by halftime, more than 10 million people watched it, according to ESPN. Uh, the Colorado viewership continues to be incredibly high. And the number of people who have watched Colorado games this year, the four games, it's like 35 million people. That is almost as many people who have watched measured Colorado games from 2018 to 2022. So that is kind of wild what these numbers are doing for Colorado, even a blowout. And uh, so, yeah, people still like to watch Coach Prime, even when it's not a good game. Well, it's been an incredible storyline to follow because obviously we all made a lot out of 8 million viewers still watching at 2 a.m. Eastern time uh, against Colorado State. But then to even watch a blowout, it absolutely is uh, one of those storylines to track. It's a lot of casual fans. This is 
far beyond sports. This is just a very famous person who draws a lot of interest and a lot of viewership. So we'll continue to track that. There was also just a, a lot of people watching college football this weekend. That game was over 10 million, as was Notre Dame, Ohio State. So this is a very popular sport. It is very healthy. A lot of people are interested in it. Uh, I'll move on to number two. Number two is uh, just a quick update on Washington State and Oregon State. They are still in limbo. Um, I was able to hop on a Zoom conference call with the leaders of both schools last week. They had presidents and their athletic directors both there. And they kind of went through the options that they have in terms of realignment and also the legal proceedings and everything that still needs to happen moving forward. I thought they were really honest and really candid about it as they were talking about it. Um, they both still are expressing interest in wanting to rebuild the conference, but they did say that they've had conversations with the Mountain West and there is mutual interest uh, from both sides on some sort of partnership. Both school administrators said that and they said that they don't know exactly what form that that would take, but this is something that they are looking into and they hope to have clarity in an optimistic timeline within a month. Um, they are still trying to also get clarity on the fiscal condition of the Pac-12 as it stands. They're trying to get financial records, trying to really figure out what their assets are and their liabilities as they're continuing to make decisions. Um, a lot of people made a lot out of comments made about relegation because we know that there is a model floating around there for like the West Coast FBS schools and this idea of, you know, promotion, relegation between different members and possibly two different leagues. And I, I did think that there was a really interesting answer given from Scott Burn Barnes, the uh, Oregon State Athletic Director. And he kind of didn't discuss it as it related directly to the proposal that was out there, but it was just the idea of relegation as a whole. He said that there are examples of that already, unequal revenue distribution models within conferences, the ACCs with their additions of Stanford, Cal, and SMU is a prime example. Uh, leagues could contract. And also you just have a, a more of a pure rel relegation model. Um, he said, quote, that will take place, I think. I think that's coming. We see it working in a similar fashion in Europe, and certainly it's worth our study. So I think that that's just going to be an interesting storyline to watch. Just how college football could continue to evolve and change. And I think a lot of sports fans like the idea of talking about promotion and relegation. You would need a lot of concerted, coordinated effort to make something like that happen. But it was a really interesting and I thought very candid answer talking about the ways in which there's already schools and teams being treated differently and receiving different kinds of money in a similar way to how promotion and relegation works. Yeah, look, I... I don't think the promotion and relegation thing is going to happen. I, I talked to Michael Walsh, the associate AD at Boise State uh, last week. You know, it's like it's like it's a it's an it's an idea that they just kind of threw out there worth talking about. They haven't consulted media partners on it. Uncertain budgets is a major issue. And if you don't know what tier you're going to be in the next year, that makes it very difficult. It's fun to talk about. It's 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 important to talk about potential new models. I don't think anyone's going to really kind of want to sign up for it at this point. But look, it, it, it's out there. It was interesting for Oregon State, Washington State people to note that within a month, they should know what the picture looks like. We'd kind of been waiting on a timeline. We didn't know what the legal process, what that was going to be. So for them to say within a month, we should have a better idea makes sense because you kind of got to get going on what you want to do for next year. You're going to have to figure out what conference you're in or what you do. You're going to have to uh, get a TV deal, which is not set. So 
we'll see. I don't think a two-team conference is likely because it's not just football. Like there's automatic qualifier spots for all sorts of sports that would need to be figured out. It's not an ideal situation at all, but we will see how that continues to play out. Number three, uh, the Athletic released our Heisman straw poll on Tuesday. Uh, It's that time of year where you can kind of start talking Heisman and see who's up for it. And surprise, surprise, it is full of Pac-12 quarterbacks. Uh, Number one, uh, Michael Penix. Number two, Caleb Williams. Not a surprise there. There's a big gap kind of after those two, but those two are leading in our Heisman straw poll right now. Number three, after that, you've got Bo Nix, Oregon, uh, Florida State quarterback Jordan Travis, Washington State quarterback Cam Ward, uh, Texas quarterback Quinn Ewers, Colorado quarterback Shador Sanders, LSU quarterback Jaden Daniels, Miami quarterback Tyler Van Dyke, Florida State receiver Keon Coleman, and LSU receiver Malik Neighbors. So yeah, that's what five Pac-12 quarterbacks out of the top seven. It looks like so. You know, this is elite. We knew coming in would have a lot of good quarterbacks, and they're playing like it so far. So Nicole, did anything jump out to you with our Heisman straw poll? I'll tell you what my ballot was. I had uh, Penix. Caleb Williams, Cam Ward. That was my one, two, three on my straw poll ballot. What about you? That's exactly the straw poll that I had as well. Um, huh, I go. yeah, I'm glad that Cam Ward got the attention that he did. I think that was that was what I was waiting to see. I think our group of colleagues tends to like fall in love with individual college players in a way that um, is really adorable. And I love it. And like, we all voted a lot for defensive players in years where there's been opportunities to have, you know, defensive finalists. And so I'm glad that everyone's paying attention to Wazoo. They've been a great story this season, but he's also just been absolutely prolific and terrific to watch. Um, So all of that sounded about right. The quarterbacks in the PAC 12 absolutely deserve the attention that they're getting. I actually thought about Keon Coleman as well, because he has been such a difference maker for Florida state. So I could see him sticking around as you're looking for non quarterbacks uh, to stay in the mix. I'm not sure that we'll see a ton of running backs this year. I I was interested in the fact that, um, you know, Jim Harbaugh said something about running back workloads earlier this week. And, you know, Blake Corum doesn't have incredible numbers this year. And I don't think they're chasing that. You know, he said that he just pulled him out at 97 yards because he didn't need another 100-yard game. He needs to stay healthy. So I, I'm not sure if Blake Coram's not putting up, you know, crazy numbers on the ground. I'm not sure anyone will necessarily break out at the running back position. But I, I, I like our straw, our straw pull. I like to watch how it changes, how we overreact to, you know, big performances and big games. But it feels feels pretty much right for me right now. Um, I will move on to number four. Number four is an interesting one. This is a storyline that just is not over yet. And it's not going to be because what Marcus Freeman did and what the Notre Dame coaching staff did at the end of the Ohio State game is one of the all-time mistakes from a coaching staff. So they had 10 men on the field for two different plays out of a timeout. And Marcus Freeman is apologizing. He's saying it's all on him. It's coming on him. And that they didn't realize in time to change it. And obviously, Ohio State didn't notice on the first play because they tried to throw the ball. And then the second play ran it up the gut where the missing defensive lineman was. So Marcus Freeman this week has been talking about how he is trying to make sure that that will never happen again. And he is putting in a process where there will be a signal uh, that they will then just draw a penalty to stop the game and get that 11th defender on the field. By the time we realized there was 10 guys on the field, we don't have time to get somebody from 
you know, the sideline when the ball's on the one yard line in the front, you know, on the far hash. To be able to, you have to touch somebody on offense to get them to stop the play. And so by the time we realized that to run somebody out there, you would have got a penalty, but they were declined and still scored a touchdown. And so as we talked as a staff yesterday, obviously we can't let that happen. We know that. We, we can't um, let 10 guys go on the field and not see it. But two, you know, we have to be able to, we came up with a call, a signal to be able to say, hey, you have to jump off sides and, and, and touch somebody on the offense so you can stop the play, right? And so it was a learning opportunity for myself and everybody um, involved with our program. This is something that I just, uh, isn't, it's not going to go away. Like this was just an all-time gap and that's where we are. So we're still talking about Notre Dame and what they did to lose that game against Ohio State. And uh, I, I get why you implement a program and a, and a process to make sure it doesn't happen again. But my God, it better not ever happen again. Yeah, look, there, there's been a lot of confusion coming out of that finish. Um, Freeman said after the game, I think that that uh, they knew it, but they didn't want to take a penalty to give Ohio State a free play. That didn't quite make sense. And I look in the heat of the moment, like you just you don't really know anybody who's been on a football sideline. Making sure the right people are out on the field is actually quite difficult, kind of in the grand scheme of things. Like it, it is pretty difficult to track. So, and, and, and some people are saying, well why not just take the penalty then? And some people correctly pointed out, you'd have to make contact with the other team in order to, to, for it to be a penalty. It's not like Marcus Freeman can just run out there waving his hands in the air and get a penalty or something like that. So, right, but Chris, they, Chris, I think that's what, Chris, that's what he's describing now though. Right. He's saying that that is what they're going to put in place. Like, right, right, right. I mean, someone does I mean like yeah. Marcus Freeman wouldn't get a penalty for running out onto the field. That wouldn't stop the play necessarily. So it, they, you do have to touch somebody. So it makes sense. But the problem was like, did they, it makes you wonder like, did they really know or not? Because it wasn't just the last play. It was the last two plays. And those two plays came out of a timeout. So like, it was very clearly unknown that they had 11 guys on the field. And like you said, look, you lose by a couple of inches running to a spot where you didn't have a player. If Notre Dame has a player on the field there, it's very possible that they stop him. So it's it's good that Freeman's saying, hey, we have a process on this now. I think most teams probably should or do have processes like that. Normally, if you don't have enough guys, a coach will call a timeout or something like that. It's rare to see it in that situation. So uh, nothing you can do about it to, to change the past, but I imagine more teams are going to probably come up with a strategy like that now. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. When you're hiring for your small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role. That's why you have to check out LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn Jobs has the tools to help find the right professionals for your team, faster and for free. LinkedIn isn't just a job board. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who are actively searching for a new job might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. On LinkedIn, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Hire professionals like a professional on LinkedIn. 
LinkedIn knows that small businesses are wearing so many hats, it might not have the time or resources to hire. LinkedIn is constantly finding ways to make the process easier. They even just launched a feature that helps you write job descriptions, making the process even easier and quicker. 2.5 million small businesses use LinkedIn for hiring, and it's time you join that number. Post your job for free at linkedin.com slash CFB23. That's linkedin.com slash CFB and the numbers 2-3 to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. Five. Uh, we usually take this number five spot to talk about the 133 and a couple of teams where they rank. And uh, two teams I want to talk about real quick, Florida State and Washington. I had Florida State at number two. I had Washington at number five. You could make a case that Washington should be number one. Like they've been the most dominant team in the country so far, for sure. Florida State probably has the best pair of wins. Nicole, I think you had Florida State at number one in your top 10. What what do you think about these two teams, kind of how we should rank them right now? So I think you could make a case either way, and I have no problem with it. And I actually think you could make a case for a couple of different teams. Like, you could still make a case for Georgia and just say, like, I'm not concerned about their sluggish starts, not concerned about the schedule. But if you base your poll the way that I'm basing mine, which is now that there's enough top teams that have played really good competition, I am going by resume, then Georgia and Michigan both have to fall down a considerable ways away. And so I had them down at four and five because I went Florida State, those two best wins out of anybody in the country. Washington has looked the best, best offense in the country and quality wins. And then third, Ohio State, because their win over Notre Dame is the singular best win in the country. So I think that you could go the route that I did. You could also make the case and just keep Georgia, Michigan, and then put those teams just based on faith and the fact that they're defending national champions and that you believe that their high end uh, is as good as those teams, even though we haven't seen it. But Florida State, I think, has definitely has the best wins and the way that they beat LSU and just totally ran away with it in the second half was impressive and winning at Clemson is hard. And I know people are down on Clemson, but I still think that this is going to be a quality win for them. Could be a top 25 win when all is said and done at the end of the season. And they had lost seven straight. The win was on the road overtime. There is something you learn about your team where this is just always going to remain a, a positive, but Washington has probably looked the part, Chris. I think that's where like you can make that case that they have looked like the best team in the country basically from the very first quarter of the very first game. Yeah, uh, and and we'll see. Look, in two weeks they play Oregon. Uh, We'll get a real read of Washington at that point. Uh, But but like you said, we got Michael Penix number one in our Heisman race. Like They are that dominant right now. If you have not watched them, uh, make sure you do. Yeah, I mean, you got an NFL quarterback, three NFL receivers. It is a lot of fun. It is a lot of fun. And to your point, we'll learn about their defense when they go up against Oregon in a couple of weeks. Um, Okay, let's move on to our open bar segment. We got a ton of great questions this week from you guys, our listeners. Um, As a reminder, you can look for this, our call out for questions uh, for basically a mailbag every Monday, Tuesday. And we'll answer the ones that we want to each week on the show. So we have a bunch of them. We'll go kind of rapid fire, kind of quick on them. Uh, Chris, I'll pose the first question to you first. It is from Brian P. What is the best story so far in college football that does not involve Deion Sanders? I love this question because I think Deion Sanders and Coach Prime have taken up so much of the oxygen that there are a lot of things, a lot of fun things to talk about in college football this season. 
to me, the most exciting story in all of college football is the success of the Pac-12 as a whole, from Washington to Washington State to USC to UCLA to Colorado to Utah to like everybody. Like this league is as good as we thought it could be coming in. And I don't, I know it's the last year. I know everybody talks about that. Whatever. We can just enjoy the Pac-12 for being such an incredibly fun conference right now with so many good quarterbacks. To me, the Pac-12 is the story of the college football season thus far. Deion Sanders ends up being a part of that. So that's my favorite thing outside of Deion Sanders, even though it kind of technically includes him, I guess. I'll, I'll let you count that one. And I agree because the quarterbacks in that league are just so, so much fun. And we had hoped that they would have a season like this, and they are. Um, so that's absolutely one of the best stories. I think one underrated storyline that's happening, we've, we've hit on it briefly at times. It has taken over the news cycle, but again, it's been all swallowed up by Deion Sanders, is Florida State is back. Texas could be back. Like These are some mm-hmm. of the brands that we wait and want to be good. USC is there. Michigan is there. Ohio State is there. Notre Dame is there. You have a lot of blue bloods that are relevant this year. And Florida State has already done it, right? Like their path to the playoff, pretty clear. I think they could lose a game and still make it. But they've got two big wins under their belt. Alabama goes and beats – sorry, Texas goes and beats Alabama at Bryant-Denny. And that's a massive win for them. That's the type of game that you want to win if you are, quote, back. And it's as back as you can be without winning your conference, without playing for a national championship. But – that's a big deal. We spend so much time every offseason and throughout the seasons wondering if blue blood programs can get back up to where they want to be. And we saw a bunch of these programs take those steps. I'll also mention as an honorary storyline that I that I like a lot, uh, Duke is very good. Duke is hosting game day this week. They're 4-0. They're yes. handily beating teams. They beat they beat Clemson, the first top win over an AP top 10 team since 1989. Kansas is undefeated. North Carolina is undefeated. Like all the jokes are easy to write about basketball schools suddenly becoming football schools, but like these are good teams. North Carolina has figured some things out defensively. Kansas is also crushing teams. Like these are not fluke wins. And I just think that's awesome. I love to see programs and especially programs at schools that are known for another sport elevate, but then stay there. And I'm glad that Duke is getting the spotlights the first time that game day will be at Duke. So we saw that with Kansas last year. um, And then they're still here. And they're again, one of the more fun offenses to watch. So I just love all of that. And no one's talking about it. Last year, I think Kansas got a lot more of the spotlight because you didn't have a Colorado story, but Duke, Duke deserves that too. Yeah, look, I mean, I remember last year we talked about the basketball teams because you can include that this year. Louisville is 4-0, Kentucky is 4-0, Kentucky's got Florida this week in a big game. So those basketball schools definitely stand out. Uh, number Another question we got here from Joe the S. What is a more Pac-12 thing? Getting two teams in the playoff? I, I assume it means more likely Pac-12 thing. Two teams in the playoff or a four-way tie at the top, ranked 5, 6, 7, and 8, and all of them missing the playoff. No, I think gonna, I think what he's Chris, I think what he's saying is yeah. what is the most Pac-12 thing to happen? Like I guess, but the Pac-12 is only the playoff. Yeah. So No, no, no. Uh, like he, like he's no, like what would be the funniest and fitting to the Pac-12? Right. I mean, I don't think two teams making the playoff would be a bad thing. It'd be a great thing. I think it's more likely the the second one, which is four teams tying and missing four teams tying in first place or whatever and missing the playoff because the Pac-12 more than any other conference has knocked itself out of the playoff in the past. You know, there, there was 2019 
Utah went into the Pac-12 championship game ranked number five. They lost to Oregon. They miss out on the playoff. Uh, then last year, Utah, Utah knocked out USC from the playoff. Like that's the part of the reason the Pac-12 hasn't made the playoffs since 2016 is because they lose in the Pac-12 championship game and they, and they cost themselves a spot. I think it's very possible that happens this year from Oregon State, Washington, Oregon, Utah, like all these teams are in, there's four top 10 teams right now. And I, they're mostly all going to play each other still. So like there's a lot of losses coming on the schedules of these teams. So I think it'd be more Pac-12 if they have a really great and fun year and end up knocking themselves out of the playoff yet again. I hope it doesn't happen, but it very well could. No, I agree. And I think it's it's like the whole idea of having this incredible season in the last year of the league as we know it, right? And like that terrible timing with that. And then, yes, if they have all these great teams, but they're all too good that they all cannibalize each other, that would also be just, you know, again, it would be terrible. Um, but I think that's the idea that the Pac-12 kind of always does this to itself. And again, like it has all these great teams, but it's too late to save the conference. And now, you know, again, can you actually break through for the, the media rights deal? I'm sorry, when, uh, for the college football playoff. Well, like you have enough contenders that you have too many contenders. So it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. I hope we see a team breakthrough. I think that we will. Um, but that is a good thought exercise question. Next question from GR in future college football playoff expansion. Would the outcome of Ohio State Notre Dame have impacted chances at the playoff? This is a good timing because actually uh, Tuesday morning, Ari Wasserman, who loves to talk about this exact topic, uh, posed this question on Twitter. And my response is, did it now? Like Notre Dame can still make the playoff if they win the rest of their games. Like, and I, I don't think it took away from the game at all. I don't think it took away from the finish. Ten million people watched that game. Like, I, I think it's ultimately good that you can lose a game and it doesn't ruin the rest of your season. Like, I understand the idea of watering down too many of these games uh, to the point where could a three-loss Ohio State team get in or whatever. But like, for the vast majority of teams, uh, it's 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 going to be a positive. And again, there is a there is a trade off with this kind of stuff because like we're getting more of these games because of the expanded playoff. Like Ohio State is playing Texas, Alabama, Georgia in these like home and home series coming up. And that's because they know they can afford to take a loss. So like I still think that's absolutely a net positive. We're going to be getting more interesting games like that. And yeah, you can lose a game and it doesn't knock you out of the playoff. It could impact you if you want to get a buy in the playoff, which is why 12 is, I think, a very good model. Um, I st- I'm still very much in favor of 12 team playoff and no more, but I know some people are concerned about the the opposite of that. Yeah, I, I agree with you in general that like I I don't think that this loss knocked Notre Dame out of the picture in a 14 playoff. And like this year, the field is is large. It feels very wide open. Mm-hmm. But I do think um, you know we're going to see games of this caliber that are going to be conference games. Like Notre Dame is obviously not joining a conference, but Ohio State's going to play USC and then they're going to play Michigan and they're going to play Oregon. So we're going to have these massive games and teams are going to lose them, but they're not going to be knocked out because we are going to be talking about those at large spots. And those leagues, the Big Ten and the SEC in particular, are going to be able to withstand those losses and still have strong enough resumes to get in and still look like the best teams in the country. So um, I agree that it is something that you could essentially say it's a mulligan. It doesn't matter, but 
that's not the point. The point wasn't to make sure that the best teams in the country could survive a mulligan and get to the playoff. It's about access and including more people and keeping people engaged throughout the season. So you'll have all of that. And then, yeah, the best teams could lose a game, get a mulligan, come back, and the best teams can play for it at the end when all is said and done. So um, I think that that is, you know, an important piece of all of this as well. Uh, here's a fun one, too, from Carl T. Which team would you rather be? USC kicking off at 9 a.m. Pacific against Colorado or Cincinnati kicking off at 10.15 Eastern against BYU? Chris? I would take the early game. Um, as a fan, I wouldn't. I mean, as a fan, I would take the later game. More time to tailgate, more time to do everything. Um, but we've seen this more and more. Like, the Pac-12 experimented with some, like, 10 a.m., 9 a.m. local time stuff before, you know, things fell apart. The Mountain West still does that. Boise State played, I think, a 10 a.m. local time game a couple weeks ago, maybe. Um, so, like, this is very much a thing. I would rather take the early game. I, I think teams would rather take the early game. I think coaches would rather take the early game. That way, your, your team's not sitting around doing nothing. you got to figure out stuff for them to do throughout the day. Um, but that is kind of highlight how strange this whole thing is going to be. And it's going to happen more when we've got conferences that are stretching coast to coast. You're going to have bizarre kickoff times for certain teams uh, on both sides of the coast when they go one way or the other. So it might be something you kind of got to get used to, but I, I would, if I was a, if I was a player or if I was on a team, I would take the early game. If I was a fan, I would take the late game. Yeah. Coaches would definitely want the earlier one, even though you'd have to get up a, you know, 3 a.m. or whatever it is to to stay in your normal routine because not about you know, 3 a.m. I, I don't know, know. whatever whatever it needs to be. I mean, early. I just think <laughs> I think coaches coaches um you know get so anxious and like they hate night games. They hate just like thinking about the game all day. And you would rather get it over with and get it done. I it's interesting when I did a story a couple months ago about um, how USC and UCLA were preparing for like the logistics of the move to the Big Ten and how this is all going to work. They were talking about like the the you know do you stay on your body clock? You know do you stay on Pacific time? Do you change? Do you go in a day early? You know how do you adjust for those weird times and also just playing games in different time zones? And so I do think that this is something that everybody is going to be thinking about and and fighting and battling. Moving forward, especially with so many of these conferences that are going to be coast to coast, because as you mentioned, I mean, BYU Cincinnati is a conference game. So this is the type of game that we are going to see. And now two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. 
See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. All right, last question for the open bar here from Ian S. Do you think that we're seeing a lack of dominance from traditional powers because losing talent to the draft while some teams have capitalized on COVID super senior veteran quarterbacks to lead their teams? Florida State, Washington, and Oregon come to mind. I think that is absolutely a factor. I think the COVID extra year, the COVID quarterbacks, you want to call them, like is a much bigger factor in the current state of college football than any of us have realized. Like that goes down to recruiting class sizes, transfer class sizes, more players being in the portal, being available because they've got extra years of eligibility. It's still going to take another like year or two for all those kids to filter out. And then we'll kind of see things level again. But I do think it gives an edge to a lot of those middle tier teams. Like if, if you're a really good player on a good team, you're probably going to the NFL. You know, like like Sam Hartman, even at Notre Dame coming from Wake Forest. That's like kind of the, the opposite side of that. So um, Michael Penix Jr., Jordan Travis, Bo Nix, guys who maybe have some more eligibility than they would otherwise. Um, that is contributing to that while Georgia and Alabama have some of the best recruiting classes uh, sorry, NFL draft classes, largest draft classes we've ever seen. But but it's not just that. I mean, like Alabama's still recruiting tons of five-star kids. That's not a reason they don't have a quarterback. That's not a reason they don't have an offensive line or wide receiver. Part of that is it's just difficult to sustain throughout the history of college football. Like what Alabama has done in the modern era is basically unprecedented. It used to be you had a couple of good years, then you flame out and somebody else comes up for a few years. So I think that's part of it too. I think we're seeing that with like with Clemson, with, with, with Alabama a bit, it's hard to sustain that high for that long. And now some teams are starting to come back to earth. Uh, and while you have a COVID quarterback or a couple of players with extra eligibility, it's going to help elevate some programs that wouldn't have that otherwise. Yeah. And I think also like, as we talk about Clemson and Alabama and those types of programs, uh, coming back down to earth, I mean, one thing that has been definitely part of this, uh, the parody or equalizing is the portal, right? Clemson doesn't use it. And it's part of the reason that they're falling behind because they're not able to supplement and plug and play in the way that some of these other teams are to avoid a drop off. And I think you're also seeing players move around instead of just riding the bench. They have the ability to leave. They can play right away with the one-time transfer rule. Um, and so maybe some of those players that, you know, feel like there's only one path to do to go to the NFL or to be prepared for the NFL or to get visibility, maybe they're making other moves or they're bouncing around or because of COVID, they do want to play closer to home so their family can go and they are making decisions that way. But I think the portal and then NIL deals, which again, maybe, you know, if you stay closer, you're a hometown hero or you go to a Nebraska or an Iowa that, you know, they don't have pro sports in the area and maybe their NIL support is in a, is in a, a place that's different than somewhere else. Um, you know, those things could factor into talent getting dispersed. It's been a huge factor in, in Olympic sports, by the way. I mean, if you look mm -hmm. at like I've covered women's basketball and softball in recent years as they're kind of like on the upswing. And there's been, the portal has been massive in that because it's dispersed a lot of talent 
in the way that, you know, like women's basketball, all the best players would just go to UConn and ride the bench and then eventually play and win a national championship. It's, it's happening in all sports where you can move around, you can play, you can get your visibility because there's something being broadcast everywhere. Yeah, and NIL kind of plays along with that too, as in you have people, you have players who could have gone to the NFL, been a sixth or seventh round pick, and instead they're coming back to play college football. Like if a quarterback makes a million dollars in NIL, that's more than Brock Purdy makes, you know, with the with the San Francisco 49ers. So that keeps good kids and good players in college as well. So it, it, it's a lot of different factors, really. Right. And, and that also can go either way too, right? If, you know, you have a great season um, and, you know, maybe NIL keeps you at your same school or NIL leads you to another school because it encourages you to get in the portal and go somewhere else. So it just has, which is not, incredible- which is not allowed and it's not happening. It's not allowed. It's not happening. People are not going into the portal for NIL money. Remember that's tampering. Yeah, sorry. No, happen. no, no tampering, no inducements, but no, I mean, I think that it's, it's affecting talent and movement, player movement in a lot of different in- interesting ways um, that we'll learn more of the more years that we have with NIL and the portal. Um, okay, let's move over into our happy hour segment. This is the part of the show where we talk about something that we are excited about, something that we're enjoying. And it's the co- the coaches that are being really feisty. It's the coaches that have just been teeing oh, off yeah. on everyone. Octogenarians have been the subject of multiple co-trants this week. Lou Holtz, Lee Corso. Um, we saw Dan Lanning's pregame rant before playing Colorado. There's just been a lot of feistiness, a lot of emotions. Ryan Day in the post game in South Bend after beating uh, Notre Dame was probably, the, I think, maybe the poster child of this because he was so emotional. He was so upset. I'm not even sure how many people had seen Lou Holtz's comments prior to that rant about just going after Holtz, saying that he believed Ohio State was soft. Like, I'd like to know where Lou Holtz is right now. What he said about our team, what he said about our team, I cannot believe. This is a tough team right here. We're proud to be from Ohio, and it's always been Ohio against the world. And it'll continue to be Ohio against the world. But I'll tell you what, I love those kids, and we got a tough team. There was a lot, and I get it, because to me, Ryan Day's rant said that he knew everything everyone's been saying about his teams. He knows that there's been a narrative they've been soft since they lost to Michigan the first time because of the way that they lost to Michigan. And he is also no, he's, he's also aware. He knew what everyone would say about him and his job status on Sunday if they lost that game. So there was a lot to be to make of the ending of this game, but I loved that they called the play to run it up the gut for one yard to win the game like that and to prove that they can win a game like that with that physicality. Um, obviously there were only 10 on 10 on the field. There's other factors that were at play ultimately, but that's where I think that came from. And he was really fired up all day. I don't know if you saw the pregame interview as well, but he was yeah. like really on this Lou Holtz thing all day. And it, it, it exploded. There were, there were, there were a lot of emotional men in college football on Saturday. I, I take umbrage with Ryan day's thing post game, not because of how the game ended, but because of how the game went up until that point, they had two other third and fourth and short situations in that game. And what did they do? They passed the ball once and they ran an end around once, both of which didn't work. So to that point, Lou Holtz looked correct. <laughs> you know, like like they were not playing tough in those situations. Only at the end 
did they decide to run the ball in that spot and got fortunate that Notre Dame didn't have a player out there. Uh, but but overall, like I, I I like it. It's more fun when coaches are outgoing and say and do interesting things. I like that they're no longer lying, that they don't read what's said about them. They know what's written about them. They know what's said about them. Uh, like it's not, it's not a secret. And I always roll my eyes at the coaches who pretend that they don't, that they live in some magical bubble where the real world never gets in. But there's another part of this too, responding to Lee Corso and responding to Lou Holtz. Like what, what why would you respond to octogenarians? Why would you respond to Lou Holtz who always picks Notre Dame to win? And the reason is coaches have a lot of respect for former coaches. So when a former coach will criticize them, like that, it means a lot more to Ryan Day that Lou Holtz would say that as opposed to Stephen A. Smith or Skip Bayless or whoever. Like Skip Bayless said something and Dan Lanning brushed it off uh, on Tuesday. When it's a former coach who's been in that spot, like a Lee Corso and like a, like a, uh, like a, like a Lou Holtz, coaches will take that a bit more personal. So I, I, I can see where that came from. Hey, producer Cam here. A quick editor's note. Chris segued nicely into this thought because coaches do take offense to what other coaches say. As Lou Holtz had a response, a clap back at Ryan Day on Dan Dockich's show on Outkick, Don't At Me. Here's what Lou Holtz had to say. Well, that that's his choice. Uh, and and he, I can understand why he did. He doesn't want to talk about Michigan, you know, 0-2. He doesn't want to talk about the big game coming up against Penn State and against Michigan again. He's a great coach. He's done a tremendous job. He's a great offensive mind. He hired an outstanding defensive coordinator from Oklahoma State, I think, and he's doing a tremendous job for him. Ohio State's a good football team. I don't think they're a great football team. But I like this new era of coaches just telling us their real feelings and, and getting feisty and cutting wrestling promos and whatnot like that. That's fun. It's a lot more fun when we have characters, when we don't pretend we're robots and, and do all this kinds of stuff. I hope we're moving past that. I, I like to call it almost like the Nick Saban era of coach speak where, where nobody gets to talk. You're always on message and, and never saying anything like that. It's good to show personality. Ohio state fans were fired up for Ryan day when he said that. And when he did that, and you can be sure the players loved it too. So like let's social show some emotion, show some energy People will connect to that in this world, and I hope we continue to get more of it. I I agree. Uh, another thing, an add-on to this, it's tangential, it's related. The Oregon video that they posted afterwards, this like cinematic produced video with closed captioning of all yeah. the talk before the game from from the Colorado players, like that was also incredible. It was just the petty was off the charts this weekend, and we are. We are like, you know, we are the presidents of the fan club. We love pettiness in college football. So it was great. It was great. Don't let anyone tell you it wasn't. Um, Okay. Speaking of things that are not great, let's go to On the Rocks. This is the part of the show we talk about something somewhere that is frustrating people. There's friction somewhere. And we're going to go back to Clemson. We have talked about Clemson before at this part of the show. Uh, We talked about them after they lost Duke and about the state of the program and kind of like the the dynasty, uh, as it were. So let's talk about where they are now. They've now lost two games in the ACC, so it would take quite a lot of help to get back to an ACC championship game. They are probably out of the CFP picture, even though despite how wide open it is. And the ACC looks good. There's a lot of other teams on this schedule that could beat them. Um, you know, it's not just Florida State. Like Miami has looked better. 
Duke, Carolina have looked good. Louisville, like the, that offense is rolling with Jeff Brom. He's even got offensive linemen doing cartwheels. Like the ACC as a whole is strong. This is a year where there's no divisions. The two best teams will play for it, which is another reason why it's going to be more challenging for Clemson to get back there if they do eventually. So, Chris, big picture in small picture and in, in medium picture, where does Clemson go from here? Look, I, this is a new this is new territory for them. Like Clemson has not been in the spot in a very long time where we're still in September and they're out of the CFP. Like it's not happening. We've, we've never had a two team make the playoff. There aren't enough good wins, I think, on the rest of the schedule for that to happen. I do think the lack of divisions does help them because they used to be in the same division with Florida State. They don't need to do better than Florida State. They just need to do better than the second place team. But you're behind Duke on a tiebreaker already. You've got to go to Miami. You've got to play Notre Dame. You've got UNC at home. Uh, it's it's tough, man. Like Clemson showed fight against Florida State. Like, like they did. If they hit that field goal at the end, maybe we're talking completely differently about Clemson. But like, those are the things that matters. And Clemson hasn't made those plays. Like when you have a third and one in overtime and you throw what is essentially a wide receiver screen uh, on, on an option play and Dabo Sweeney's yelling one yard, we need one yard. Why are we doing that? We should be handing off. And it just kind of blows everything up. It just, it, that situation highlighted just how disconnected Clemson is right now. They're just not on the same page with a lot of this stuff with missing field goals. I think the, I think they're dead last in the country in field goal makes uh, or percentage. They've made two field goals all year. They've missed four or five. You had to bring a former kicker in just to, to try to do that. And it ends up you lose the game. Like there's a lot of issues on this team that is not simply offensive play caller or this or that. It's a lot of things. And they show up when you get beat by a Keon Coleman, a transfer portal player, when you're not someone who goes into the portal. Like there's just, it's all coming to a head all at once for Clemson and to be in this much of a hole this early i'm curious if we just kind of put clemson out of mind for a while uh, until they do something notable because we're not going to be they're not going to be in the mix maybe the rest of the year well i mean this is what happened two years ago right i mean it wasn't it wasn't acc losses but they did have two losses in september and they were out of mind they they finished with 10 wins but they didn't really come close to the CFP. They didn't come close to capturing the the national storylines and the national attention. And I I think, you know, over the last two years, all we've just said is, okay, the, the offense is bad. People stop watching when they're not playing in big games. And then, and we move from that point onward. And it's going to be really interesting because I'm with you. I mean, I thought Clemson's offense looked good. I thought they they looked a lot different than they did against Duke and a lot better kicking game obviously a problem for the reasons you outlined but like I, I get why people look at Keon Coleman and I've made the arguments about the portal and how you know that you can supplement the the talent you're recruiting and you can fill in some of those holes but like they didn't really have that problem they made plays offensively they made enough plays to win that game and I it's just it, it's it's where it is it's what it is that's why I think Florida State was a great win for them because they had to go and get it because Clemson did play tough. And um, I, I do wonder, as you said, you know, kind of like with without things to play for, what happens to the season, right? Is it a lost season when, you know, you're probably out of the ACC race, you're out of the CFP, and this whole idea was, okay, new quarterback, new offense coordinator, it's going to be different. We're going to be a new Clemson. And, and that doesn't happen. So 
it's going to be really interesting. I think we'll probably learn a lot about how they respond in the next couple of weeks. And they do have that Notre Dame game on the schedule, um, which is going to be a fascinating one. But they, again, they played they played so much better in this game than they did against Duke. Maybe we will see the, that offensive evolution in playmakers in, in ways that we didn't see previously. I'll, I'll be curious. I mean, Chris, is there anything that they could show you that would change how you feel about the trajectory of the program here in the next couple of weeks? Well, for one, start making some field goals. I mean, they they could be four and zero if they don't blow all those field goals against Duke and they make this one to be and 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 to Florida State. But like, it's those little things that are killing this team. Like again, a wide receiver screen on third and one, a missed field goal at the end of the game. They're just the the scoop and score, giving up a long fumble return touchdown when you're in control of the game. Like those are plays that elite teams do not have happen to them. And they're just making these killer mistakes. And that's what puts them in this hole. So like you cut that stuff out. Yeah, maybe things turn around. But like there's been a lot of them in both of these two losses. Yeah, it'd be really interesting to see what we learn about the team, how they respond. It's a different level of adversity, I think, than we've seen for Dabo's crew in the last couple of years. Uh, we're going to wrap up the show as we always do with our last call. This is a cheers or jeers. It's whatever we want to celebrate or rant about as we are closing down our tabs at the end of the night. Um, Chris, I'm going to go first here because I want to stick with the trend of, of the pettiness that we saw unfold in Eugene this weekend. You saw the video, right? Of the Oregon duck in the pregame. Did you watch this clip? Yes. That was going around. Okay. Yes. So I highly recommend everybody look it up because it was truly hilarious, uh, but I'll describe it. So we all know Puddles is one of the most iconic mascots in college football. So Puddles comes out and has a, a clock, like prime time, right? So it's his prime, but it's basically a clock. So it's, it's prime time. And then he's got like a, I don't know, like a bat or something. And he smashes it, smashes it, smashes it, gets so into it that he throws his head, like his head off, the mascot head, the fuzzy It falls part. off, yeah. It falls off because he's so in, interested in like in tearing down primetime. And the number one rule of mascots is no one's ever supposed to know who's in there and you're not supposed to be seen. You're not supposed to never take your head off and round other people. So he sprints, sprints right back into the tunnel to get away because you're not supposed to do that. You're not supposed to be, the, be seen as the mascot. So it was just like a perfect video because it had all my favorite things, the pettiness, uh, this is a mascot that does crazy things and also has to do like a million push-ups during games when they've been blowing people out. And then also like you had the, the sheer terror of the head falling off and having to sprint out of there in the middle of this like orchestrated scene. It was so funny. It was perfect. Puddles, I love you. Cheers to you. Dude was into it. Dude, dude got a little too far into beating up that uh, styrofoam clock or whatever. My question on that, why run all the way back to the tunnel. It was a good like 10, 15, 20 feet all with his head off, like trying to cover up his head. Why not just grab the head and put it back on? That feels like it would have been a, I don't know. Saved Did, a lot more time. You know, I thought about that too, but I was wondering if like, maybe he just wanted to like disappear, like not just pretend I, like it didn't happen. Just get away. Yeah. I don't know. Is it mascot protocol? Like if, if your head falls off, you just have to get out of there as opposed, maybe you don't put it back on. Maybe that's the protocol yeah. for mascots. If anybody on this listening has been a mascot before, if you had a, if there was like a rule in place for something like that, let us know. Cause I, I was very curious because that the clip went on a lot longer because of that, cause he's got to go all the way back up the tunnel yep. as opposed to just putting it back on. So I don't know, but it was very funny. My call, my last call is both the cheers and the jeers. 
Uh, it's it's a it's it's for James Madison head coach Kurt Signetti. So second quarter of Saturday's game is Utah State. They're up twenty four to nothing. Utah State fakes a field goal. The kicker runs around for a touchdown, but he might have stepped out of bounds. And you, and James Madison wants to challenge. They've been told it's reviewed. James Madison coaches on the sideline talking. To the refs are really really upset. Someone comes up to Signetti. So if someone holds up their phone with a screenshot of the play and Signetti grabs the phone and shows it to the ref and the ref immediately snatches it out of there. It was hilarious. It, it, he was doing the Patrick Beverly. Remember Patrick Beverly did that for the Lakers back in January when he pulled out a camera from somewhere, showed it to the referee, got a technical foul and got ejected. It was, it was very funny, but it's a jeers because that's against the rules. You're not, you're not allowed to use uh, electronic communication devices for coaching purposes on the sideline. Most coaches and players do not have their phones on the sideline for that reason. NFL coaches don't have, I'm sorry, college football coaches don't have tablets on the sideline like the NFL, like that is not allowed. So uh, credit to the announcers who were calling the game. Uh, they noticed that right away. They said, hey, he's not allowed to do that. He's not allowed to do that. And ultimately, uh, Signetti was given a public reprimand by the Sun Belt for those actions. He apologized, said it was heat of the moment. He shouldn't have done it. He still thinks the guy stepped out of bounds. Uh, but incredibly funny uh, image and, and moment there. And James Madison held on to win, so we can all just laugh about it now. Uh, I love that. And I hope that once we get off here, you can find me. Like, I want a screenshot of him pointing to the phone in the same way, like that there's that Lynn Manuel Miranda meme where he's like looking at a, you know, like, Looking on the yeah. screen was like holding a phone. I want that for this situation. That's a good so idea. We need we need to make that a college football meme. I'm, yes, it, it that's what done I'm that. saying. It should be. It should be. We will work on that this week uh, before the next episode of Power Hour. And uh, as we are wrapping this one up, I do want to thank you all for tuning into Power Hour. We really enjoy doing it. Um, it's a lot of fun, and we love getting your questions. So be sure to send more next week. Uh, the open call for uh, Open Bar will be out on Monday. And in the meantime, be sure you're following until Saturday's podcast feed, wherever you listen to podcasts, so you'll be notified when new episodes are up. We always appreciate five-star reviews and ratings. Hit the subscribe button on our YouTube channel. Join us every Thursday, Saturday, and Sunday on our live streams. And again, if you like the written word and you want news straight to your inbox, well, subscribe to the Until Saturday newsletter as well. For Chris Benini, I'm Nicole Auerbach, and we'll see you next time. 